We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Welcome back. This is the Big Blue Banter, New York Giants football podcast. I'm Dan Schneier, and I'm not actually joined, as always, by my co-host, Nick Pilato. He's missing his first show, had something come up, could not make it tonight. But I'm really excited to do this show anyway because we have been peppering you guys with draft film evaluations this entire offseason. Just everything's been based on the film. And I wanted to bring in an old friend of mine. We used to work together at Pro Football Focus way, way, way back in the day. Now he's doing bigger and better things, and so am I. No offense to Pro Football Focus over there. But it's Scott Barrett from FantasyPoints.com. Scott Barrett is going to bring a little bit of a different approach to this 2021 rookie class. We're going to go over a lot of different players, a lot of different positions, but it's going to be based less on film and more on kind of the analytics. And I'll kind of let you explain what his model is based on, where it comes from, and what it sets out to kind of determine and come to. So before we do any of that, I did want to welcome Scott onto the show. And before we did that, I wanted to say follow him on Twitter. You can find him on Twitter at Scott Barrett DFB. You can find him on fantasypoints.com and right now at fantasypoints.com. You can sign up for their NFL draft guide, which you can get over the app. It's $25 and what you're going to get out of that is over 200 profiles on the draft eligible prospects from Greg Cosell. Yeah, that's right. Greg Cassell, the guy we talk about and reference on this podcast all the time. My favorite guy for breaking down NFL film. So if you love film, and obviously if you're listening to Big Blue Banter, you do, head over there. You're going to get 200 draft profiles from Greg Cosell. So, Scott, welcome to the show. I'm really excited to have you on here. And let me know if I botched anything in that intro. No, man. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm super excited to, to come on. And, yeah, I miss you, man. It's been a while. It really- 
really has. Scott and me used to actually live in New Jersey, work for Pro Football Focus, all the things were going on. And Scott blew up. I mean, at the time, I think I had comparable Twitter following to you, Scott. Now you've, you've hit that 66,000 mark and you're just taking a rocket ship to the moon. But I'm really excited about things you're doing over there at fantasypoints.com. It's really fun to watch your rise in this industry as well. Not only are we New Jersey boys, but we were in the same town at one point, Montclair, New Jersey, loaded with NFL superstars. Elliot Chris was there as well. Uh, I know a few other guys who live close by, maybe not exactly in the same town, but, but yeah, man. Yeah, there was a lot of talent in that Montclair area at the time. We're all gone on to do different things. I think we're all in really good spots, though. I like what all three of us are doing and all the other people from that area. But let's talk a little bit, Scott, about the 2021 draft. So I want to start by talking about the model you created, what went into it, uh, what kind of what you set out to accomplish with it, and what you kind of took away from it. Yeah, so let me just start off by saying, like, the you know, my analysis is not film-driven, though I can do that. I You know, I spent hours last week and the week before breaking down film with actually some of my buddies who uh, are either still at PFF or the recently left PFF. So watching it all 22 with them, taking their brain, learning, trying to see the uh, football through the eyes of someone who's like far superior to me. And I, I'm really not a film guy, but I did break it down with some uber geniuses. So I, I think I have a decent grasp of that. But yeah, what I bring to the table, primarily my greatest strength, is in data analysis. And, and that's what I did with my, with my models, my, my rookie prospect models. Mostly, primarily, I look at this from a fantasy perspective, but there's really a lot of overlap here. And it's, it's a multi-phase process. So phase one uh, is I, I, I take every college player's production and efficiency numbers while in college, and I run it through a model that looks only at the most important, most predictive variables for each position. What variables am I talking about? Well, for wide, for tight ends, that's going to be yards for route, yards for route run. For wide receivers, it's going to be uh, age-adjusted production, breakout age, uh, yardage market share, yards for route run, things like that. And for for running backs, it's going to be uh, missed tackles forced, yards after contact, yards after the catch. Uh, things of that nature. So just really looking at the most important variables and weighting them appropriately and then trying to predict what I think they'll do for fantasy at the next level and giving them a historical score. And how does that score compare to you know the best wide receivers in last year's class and the year before that, the year before that? And then phase two of my model, the articles aren't up, but the, the work is primarily done is incorporating athleticism. Athleticism is, I think, super overrated, but still very important. I created my own stat, life spark score. I called it sort of tongue-in-cheek spork score. <laughs> and so it just looks at the most athletic uh, players in this class, again, by the most important variables. You know, for a tight end, that's going to be speed score, weight-adjusted 40 time, then the broad jump, then weight-adjusted recon. And so it just looks at things like that. And then so all the players in my pre-combine model, they get tweaked by athleticism. And then the third final variable is uh, draft capital, which we don't know yet. Uh, that's the most predictive variable. And really, I'm looking at this from a fantasy perspective. You know, sports score is, is how do these athletic events compare for, for a fantasy perspective? I, I don't really care too much about blocking tight ends and things of that nature, but 
again, so have my have my pre-draft rankings just about finalized, and we could talk about uh, these prospects, primarily running backs, wide receivers, and tight ends, and where they rank according to me. Quarterbacks, I spent so much time. I've tried so hard. There's just really no variables that there's nothing to go on with the data that that's predictive whatsoever. It's just too difficult. So I, I, I left that out of the equation for now. I'm going to leave that up to the experts like Greg Cassell. I'm just going to trust what he has, what he sees on tape. But uh, running backs, wide receivers, tight ends, I feel really good about. And I have to say, you know, there's there's a few guys I'm a little higher or lower on, but for the most part, you know, uh, nothing nothing too outlandish with what you'll see from Greg Cassell and some of the other great talent evaluators in this industry. Yeah, no doubt. And I think it's really important for everyone to kind of consider. There is obviously this debate that I'm sure some of you who follow our podcast and follow our work on Twitter have seen raging on Twitter among, you know, the draft community, film versus analytics, film versus analytics. But I don't think that's really a necessary debate to have. I think it's important to note that both of them are important, both film and analytics. They're both predictive in their own ways, and they both can be either more or less predictive depending on the situation that goes into it. And I think both should always be weighted into it. I don't think you can watch, you can trust someone's opinion on just based on film because there are some biases in watching film. And then on the flip side, obviously with the analytics, there's obviously not necessarily biases. I wouldn't say that, but there are just outliers and things of that nature that you might be able to see. If you watch the film, you might not know that, you know, Darius Slayton, is an interesting prospect for the NFL because he played in such a bad offense with such poor quarterback play and examples like that. So I think that's important to factor in, but I am excited to hear your take on kind of that version of what this class is all about. You know, how did your model, how does your model predict how these prospects are going to kind of shake out at the next level? And I know it's fantasy based, but I think it's also important to note that this is also predictive of how these players will be at the next level. And that will be important for, for our fans here on the Big Blue Banter podcast, the Giants are in need of a wide receiver. The Giants may very well be in the market for a tight end as well because of how much resources they put into trying to find him in free agency. They struck out but almost signed Hunter Henry. Then they signed Kyle Rudolph, but how long is he going to be here for? Evan Ingram, probably out the door next season. So they're probably looking with Jason Garrett here to invest in that position potentially in this draft as well. And then running back is a position where I think the Giants would be smart to use a day three pick on to try to try to put some juice in that backfield Outside of just Saquon Barkley, I'm not a huge fan of Devontae Booker's. I'm sure you're all aware, well aware of on the show. But let's first start, Scott, by talking about the wide receiver position because it's nearest and dearest to these Giants fans' hearts. So start, I guess, by giving us kind of some key takeaways from the wide receiver class from just like the 30,000-foot view of what this class is all about. Yeah, so this is a really special class. There's also a really unique class where, where some guys stand out as having some serious red flags and it's TBD on how the NFL is going to view that with, with Devonta Smith, you know, he, he just put together one of the greatest seasons in college football history, you know, first wide receiver to win the Heisman in nearly 30 years, <clears throat> but he didn't run any of the events at the, the pro day. Uh, you have to think that's because he thought it was going to hurt his draft stock, he, he, which we have to infer you know, it probably wasn't going to be great. And then beyond that, he is so skinny. His BMI is so low. Like, his closest comparison is, like, positive comparison from an athletic standpoint. <clears throat> Just height, weight, BMI is, like, Todd Pinkston. And, you know, we don't see wide receivers being drafted within his BMI range. And, you know, if not Todd Pinkston, it's Deshaun Jackson. And, you know, he clearly does not have Deshaun Jackson's elite speed. And the hit rate on low BMI – 
wide receivers is really bad, in addition to the fact that we just don't see many of them being drafted at all. Whereas, you know, high BMI wide receivers, A.J. Brown, you know, those guys typically overachieve their draft capital. Uh, and then, you know, Tutu Atwell, that, but even more extreme, 155 pounds. And then uh, uh, Rondale Moore, I mean, so short, like, athletic freak, but so tiny from a height perspective. And then within this class, I see a lot of slot only wide receivers. And, you know, maybe people are going to disagree with me, but, uh, you know, Jalen Waddle, 90% of his career production from the slot. Um, Elijah Moore, I view, I love, but I, I view as slot only. Canarius Tony, slot only. Rondale Moore, slot only. Uh, and so the question there is, do we see the NFL penalize these wide receivers for being either slot only or predominant slot early in their career? Because that, that's a trend that we, we have to just take note of. Is that That's become a devalued position in the NFL. Slot wide receivers, they don't get drafted quite as high. Uh, you don't get paid quite as much. It's a more easily replaceable position in the NFL. Just look at what Bill Belichick has gotten out of slot wide receivers with zero draft capital behind them. And so is that what happens? Or is it just, hey, the NFL is going to be in desperate need of some good, sticky nickel quarterbacks in a few, year, a few years? I don't know the answer to that question, but, but I, I do think that's interesting. But yes, the takeaway is this is a very special class. And all the way at the top is Jamar Chase, who my model had pre, pre-pro pre day as the best wide receiver prospect since at least 2015. And then you factor in a 99 percentile sports score. And man, he's probably the best wide receiver prospect since A.J. Green and Julio Jones. Yeah, it's awesome when you look at Chase because everybody talked about, does he have that deep speed? Is he able to break away from defenders? And the people who talked about that, I feel like didn't watch his tape because if you actually watched and broke down Jamar Chase tape, you saw that he was breaking away from defenders. And it was, well, I mean, I'm not a huge fan of the 40 time. Everyone who listens to this podcast knows that. I believe it's kind of bullshit. And I'd so much rather just look at GPS tracking data of how fast these players actually are. I'm with you. But having said that, since we don't get access to that, because the NFL and the NCAA have probably never released that type of data, but you watch Chase and you can see it on film. And then he comes out and he shows it with that 438. So it's interesting to hear he was – both Nick and I's wide receiver one in this class as well. But to hear that he's, in your mind, the best receiver prospect to come out since 2015, that's impressive. But one key takeaway I wanted to talk to you about a little bit more, just because I thought it was really interesting, is what you said about this class as a whole when it comes to slot receivers versus boundary types. Because I think if you look at the Giants roster right now, they could really use another boundary type receiver, someone who can play on the outside so they can use Sterling Shepard in the slot, even if they do plan to move on from Shepard maybe in a year or two based on the salary concerns, I still think you would rather always go for the boundary. And I think what you said is true. Everybody talks about how special this receiver class is, but and then a lot of Giants fans say, why would they take a receiver in round one when it's the deepest position and they could go another position in round one and then get a better receiver later versus going receiver in round one, then what could they get later at the other position? But you can't look at the draft in my mind like that, like filling it need by need, because when you look at it like that, you're kind of overlooking what you just said, Scott, which is that, yeah, this receiver class is special, but kind of dies out for the boundary guys after the top. There's really just a lot of special slots that you can find in the later rounds. But I did want to talk to you a little bit about a player who I think can actually be, I don't want to say special, but a pretty damn good boundary receiver later, and there's really not too many of them. So I want to talk to you about Josh Palmer out of Tennessee. 
Do you have any thoughts on Josh Palmer? I feel like he's going to be, in my mind, my favorite target for the Giants on day three. I think he'll fall there just based on some of the, you know, things I've heard about where his stock is. And I think he can be a boundary type on the outside. Yeah, I will just say, uh, so he's not someone who particularly pops in my model as a, you know, top 10 wide receiver, but I do know a lot of the minds I really trust and respect like him a lot. Greg Cassell really likes him, called him one of the most intriguing wide receiver prospects in this class. I know there's buzz, you know, he could potentially sneak into day two. Danny Kelly likes him quite a bit. We actually co-own a, a dynasty league and he just drafted, uh, or he just tried to draft Josh Palmer and, and we got sniped on him. So he's one of those guys who wasn't on my radar early on, but he seems to be climbing in buzz. And uh, a lot of the, the people I, I really respect when it comes to film analysis likes him quite a bit. So then let's pivot then and talk more about your model then. Is, if not Palmer, are there any potential day three type wide receivers that you've been hearing or that we've been hearing will potentially go in that range that, are, that jump off and pop off in your model? Uh, the, the day three guys, uh, yeah, I don't know. I will say my model absolutely loved Tutu Atwell. That was before, you know, adjusting for the red flags in his weight, low BMI, you know, the 40 wasn't phenomenal given those concerns, but uh, he, he really looks special. And, you know, Daniel Jeremiah had him, had him as a top 50 player. And now after the pro day, you're really seeing, you know, him all over the place in mock. Sometimes he's going round three. Sometimes he's going round five. Um, and just looking at the numbers there, I mean, he averaged 4.33 yards per route run in 2019. Uh, that's the second best season PFF has ever recorded uh, since 2014 when they first started uh, grading college wide receivers. He was also PFF's highest graded wide receiver that year. He led in yards after the catch. Um, he was just 19 years old in that season. Uh, and so I, I don't know what to make of the low BMI concern. Just Pete, wide receivers in that range just do nothing in the NFL. And like the sample size of players who were drafted in that range, uh, you know, there's like six, let's say, and none of them ever did anything. But he could be, you know, he could be a slot guy. He could be, you know, the, the red flags serious but you know there's some upside there who, who knows so uh that, that's that's someone who who popped out to me i, I kind of didn't do much work on the potential day three guys just because those aren't super sexy from a fantasy perspective right. anthony schwartz probably the fastest wide receiver in this class my model really liked him my mo- my model had him as the uh 13 no the 11th best wide receiver in this class uh so i think he's interesting I mean, you know, we know the NFL covets speed. So if a team just used him as like a super poor man's Henry Ruggs, let's say, like he could, you know, he could be very early day three. Yeah. And speaking of your model, and you'd mentioned earlier, breaking it down, that some of the things you look for, you mentioned them by position. One of the things for, for receivers you said was yards per route run. I don't, I, I, my recall is getting worse and in these, in my older age somehow, maybe it's, uh, I got to lay off the lay off the uh, the legal New Jersey marijuana, but what were some of the other trends and metrics that you used to break down receivers? And, and can you t- talk a little bit for the listeners about why these metrics you think are predictive and important? Things like yards per route run. Yeah, so I think the most important metric for wide receivers is age adjusted production. You can define that fairly arbitrarily. 
but yeah, breakout age, you, you've heard that term too. I know you're a big dynasty guy. Uh, breakout age, age-adjusted production. And why that's basically you just want to see a wide receiver who put up numbers really early in his career or at a really young age. And, and why that makes sense, I'm quoting from Adam Harstad, who's a good buddy and a, a writer at Football Guys. Uh, here's what he told me. Given normal human development, 19-year-old males are at a physical disadvantage compared to 21-year-old males. The ability to dominate despite operating at a handicap is indicative of surplus talent. For instance, compiling 1,000 receiving yards in a season where you literally played with one arm tied behind your back would also be a strong indicator of future NFL success. And that's really one of the most uh, predictive metrics we have, especially for wide receivers as it relates to how you transition into the NFL. And so if you look at that, Jamar Chase has that for days. So two years ago, he sat out last year, he totaled the sixth most receiving yards of any power five wide receiver since 2000, the fifth most receiving touchdowns by any power five wide receiver since 2000. He did that uh, despite being only 19 years old, a full year younger than Justin Jefferson. He outproduced Justin Jefferson and on fewer targets. We know Justin Jefferson is good. He just had the best rookie season by any wide receiver since the NFL merger in 1970. So, like, the, the fact that he could do this at age 19 and the fact that he could do it playing alongside Justin Jefferson just screams this guy has massive upside. By my metric, age-adjusted total receiving yards, it's the second-best season since 2000. Michael Crabtree's absurd freshman season ranks best, and like kind of no one's ever really coming close to that. But if you look at the top 16 by this stat, basically, I don't have it off the, the top of my head, but like the top, like 14 of the top 16, 14 of the top 18, those wide receivers all had at least one fantasy wide receiver one season in the NFL. So really good sign, really positive sign. In the, in the top six, you see Crabtree, Chase, Brandon Cooks, Justin Blackman, uh, Amari Cooper, Larry Fitzgerald. And then if you want to do the same thing, but look at it on a yards per game basis, it's Michael Crabtree, one, Elijah Moore, two, Justin Blackman, who, you know, would have been a stud if not for off the field things, Brandon Cooks, Jamar Chase, Larry Fitzgerald, Devontae Parker, it goes on and on and on. And so those are two guys who really stand out. Rashad Bateman's another one. Age-adjusted yardage market share really pops by that. Rondale Moore, you know, arguably the greatest age 19 wide receiver season ever. It was just so obscene, so absurd. And he dealt with injuries a few years after. So this class is loaded with a bunch of guys like that. Yeah, it really seems to be. And I want to talk to you a little bit about one guy you mentioned there, Ole Miss wide receiver Elijah Moore. He is a personal big-time favorite of the Big Blue Banter podcast. Nick and I did a breakdown of his film a lot earlier during the draft season. I personally view him as honestly one of the 20 best players in this class, one of the 20 best non-quarterbacks in this class. I think that might be being conservative. I think he might be one of the 15 best players. I watch Elijah Moore and I, and I look at Devontae Smith and I'm like, yeah, I love Devontae Smith's film, but at the same time, I don't know how much further, I don't really know how far behind Elijah Moore is. What does your model say about a player like Elijah Moore and how do you feel about Elijah Moore in general? Yeah. So this is music to my ears. This is, Elijah Moore is my guy. He ranks third in my pre-pro day model, and then he had a really good pro day. He didn't move an inch. So Elijah Moore, age 18, as a true freshman, 
playing alongside DK Metcalf and A.J. Brown, who are 2.4 to 2.8 years older. He was the clear wide receiver three. DK Metcalf missed some games, but Moore was basically only 150 yards behind, let's say. And then as a, uh, a sophomore in 2019, caught 67 balls for eight, 850 yards and six touchdowns. Might not seem like a lot, but the next closest receiver only had 192 yards. They threw only 11 touchdown passes all year. So this was an elite season by yardage market share, dominator rating, touchdown market share, age adjusted, all of those numbers I just cited. And in 2020, people are not talking enough about how insane his 2020 season was. So he turned 101 targets into 86 receptions, 1,193 receiving yards, eight touchdowns, also 64 yards rushing. Okay, that doesn't seem like a lot. He only played eight games. So once you adjust for that fact, his 157.1 yards from scrimmage per game is the most by any Power 5 wide receiver since at least 2000. And I think maybe ever. He might have just had the most yards from scrimmage per game of any college wide receiver ever. That's how obscene his uh, 2020 season was. And not enough people are talking about it. He smashed. smashed Yeah, go ahead, Scott. He smashed in yards for route run. Uh, he was, he, he led all non Alabama wide receivers in separation rate, elite PFF grade. Uh, and from a fantasy perspective, again, that's my thing. So like I, I see him being a true PPR cheat code for fantasy. He averaged 10.8 receptions per game last year. That's obscene. But I also see some Tyler Lockett and T.Y. Hilton upside for him from the slot, which is to say, He's great at the deep ball. He led all wide receivers in deep receiving yards per game last year, ranked second best in yards for deep target, and he had that 4.35 40-yard dash. So I, I really, like, yes, I think he's slot only in, in the NFL, and Lane Kiffin kind of brought that up. But Lane Kiffin said, but he's a special slot wide receiver. He's a round one slot wide receiver, and he reminds me of Steve Smith. And that's what I see. He's a, he's a slot wide receiver for sure, but he's a special one. He's he's a special one for sure. I think you absolutely nailed that, Scott. I think when we went into it watching his film, everyone told us, oh, you know, he had a lot of his touches manufactured in that offense. He was kind of a benefactor of the offense he played. And then you watch the film, you're like, wait a second. Yeah, he has some plays where it's designed to get him the ball quick in space. But then you also see him separating really easily those in-breaking routes. You see toughness on every single throw to him over the middle. No matter wh- what kind of safety he's bearing down him, he's hanging out the ball. Then most importantly – from a vertical standpoint, he tracks the ball so well vertically. It's one of the most underrated traits for a receiver, the ability to track the ball in the air on those vertical shots. And let's be honest, in today's NFL, most teams are using 11 personnel. And more importantly, the cheat code of today's NFL, for offensive coordinators at least, is that slot vertical. It's basing everything in your offense off that slot vertical because you know you're going to get a nickel there. And if you you know, manipulate the route combinations well enough and your quarterback is good enough to hold the safety with his eyes, you can potentially get a one-on-one off that slot vert. And I think he can be an absolute menace there. So I love what you said about Elijah Moore. I don't know how the Giants are going to have a chance to get him because I don't think he'll be there at 42 in this draft class. I think it would be ridiculous if the NFL lets him get there. And I, and it may be because he's five foot nine, there's a small chance. But like you said, after he ran that 4-3-5, I think it's almost impossible he gets there. But he's a player I'm actually super interested in if they trade down from that 11th overall pick or if they trade back into round one if he falls. There's a lot of ways to potentially get creative and get him. I, I got to be honest, I love Devontae Smith, who I know we talked about a little earlier, and I know he would have to be kind of an outlier from the statistical standpoint because of that BMI, and I do agree with that. 
But I watch more, and I think he's like barely a poor man's Devontae. Like not almost not even. So I really like him. But one receiver of the top guys the Giants are going to be interested. We didn't get a chance to talk about yet. I do want to touch on before you know we we turn the page on receivers. That would be Jalen Waddle because I think Jalen Waddle could very likely be the pick for the Giants in two weeks from now when the draft is is underway. What are your thoughts on Jalen Waddle? Yeah, so he was a, a tricky evaluation for me, and he's a guy most models are going to miss on because, you know, the raw production wasn't really there. But I think my model picked him up better just because I, I, I basically used two models and I blend them together. One is really just like an age-adjusted production model, and the other is an efficiency model. And my efficiency model loved him, wide receiver three in the class. My more basic model had him wide receiver nine, but... By the efficiency metrics, my goodness, he smashed in everything. I think the greatest stat I ever came up with, um, especially for for wide receiver prospects, is depth-adjusted yards per target over expectation. So, like, yards per target on its own is, like, a a really bad stat. You want to look at it on a per-route basis because targets are themselves a positive indicator of talent. The other thing is, too, if you – if you're averaging an average depth of target of like 20 versus five, you're going to have a much higher yards per target. So basically this stat factors that in and, and it creates an expectation. And Waddle wasn't just number one by this stat across his Alabama career. He was number one and no one else came particularly close. And you, you just see that on tape. And the stats really bear that out. A leap after the catch, a phenomenal deep threat, uh, insane wheels there's video of him racing henry ruggs in the 40 at alabama and it resulted in a tie freak freak athlete uh the red flags i mean the the red flags are are kind of serious i do think he's slot only a lot of film experts say that's wrong but i I just mean we 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 have like no sample size of him running routes from the outside the other concern is maybe he has a breakout age he had 848 yards uh, as a true freshman, but he's only 11 days younger than Devonta Smith. He turned 20 halfway through that season, and that was also his career high. You can say, okay, well, he was playing alongside four top 15 wide receivers and also Irv Smith. Uh, so you could say, okay, but he was also a backup for the first two years. He was playing behind Henry Ruggs and Jerry Judy and Devonta Smith, I guess because he's the flat really playing behind Jerry Judy, and I love Jerry Judy, so like, Okay, maybe that's understandable, but still that's a concern. He got hurt last year, but he was actually outproducing Devonta Smith prior to his injury. 139 yards per game to 121 for Devonta Smith. And when he did get those opportunities, you know, fourth and routes run every season, but I mean, he was outproducing Henry Ruggs. And like on a per route basis, his numbers were obscene. 2020, 4.38 yards per route run. Uh, 2018, 3.58. 2019, 2.98. Henry Ruggs' high was 2.45. Jerry Judy's high was 3.32. So, uh, again, this guy, again, I'm not the tape expert, but when I watch him on tape, man, this guy is special. A a surreal angle beater in a way that I've only ever seen Tyreek Hill be. And I'm not saying he's Tyreek Hill. No one's Tyreek Hill. But maybe the closest thing. You know, what about Odo Beckham Jr., Scott? Ooh. Is that your cop? 
No, no, that's actually not my comp for Jalen Waddle, but I do think that when you're talking about just beating those angles, some real angles to beat, like you watch Waddle on tape and you see it, you're like, how the hell did he get to the outside there with the safety where he was at? I feel like you're right. It's Tyreek Hill, but also Beckham. Beckham was similar in that regard. Yeah, no, that's that's a great point. Uh, also, like Tyreek Hill, he's actually the best wide receiver in this class at contested catch rate, which yes. is a little surprising at his size. Uh, phenomenal returner um, and and a much better deep threat than than Henry Ruggs was in college. Yep, I'm with you on all of those things. And I think the main thing you said there that a lot of people don't give him credit for or just don't expect when they go into watching and evaluating Jalen Waddle is that he is really good in contested catch situations. I actually think Devontae Smith is great at that too due to his long arms. Those guys are not what you think. Elijah Moore actually ranks third best. Just, yes. just another shout out to our guy. Yeah, man. I mean, like I said, watching Elijah Moore, he might be one of the toughest receivers in this class. He's hanging on to every ball that's thrown his way. I, I love Moore. I can't talk. You know about who's him. a big Elijah Moore fan? What'd you say? You know who's a big Elijah Moore fan? That? OBJ. Oh, really? Yeah, you see the shout out from him. I think I think OBJ called him his favorite. Uh, I'll pull it up. Favorite wide receiver in the class. Oh wow, that's a that's that that's that's high regard from Odell Beckham Jr. Especially considering there's an LSU wideout in this draft. Yeah, he said he, he said uh, they sleeping on Elijah Moore. This kid is special. Yeah, I mean he's right. This kid is special, and someone's going to get lucky enough to get him. Probably just outside the top twenty. I don't know, top twenty five. I mean, some team might be smart enough to overlook smartly his size and not put too much credit on the fact that he's only five foot nine. I mean, that's to me, it's a, it, like you said with Steve Smith, it never held him back. And again, you're looking at outliers. I know that. It's same thing with Devonte. Like the BMI definitely makes an outlier, but. Outliers, you know, if you're special enough, you can be an outlier. I mean, it's tough to bank on them, but look at Calvin Ridley, man. Everyone who watched Calvin Ridley on tape thought he was special, and then he did so poorly with the with the athletic testing. It's like he fell all the way into the twenties. Um, so I don't know. I just feel like it's it, it's definitely a, a risk when you make those gambles, but sometimes you just know it. And I feel like Elijah Moore, you watch him on tape. And you know it, but let's talk a little tight ends because we spent a lot of time on receivers. I want to talk a little bit about tight ends. Kyle Pitts, to me, is the best prospect I studied on film. I said it two months ago when we did his draft profile. I said I doubt I'll find another non-quarterback prospect I like more. I think Jamar Chase was the only one who came closest for me. And after listening to you talk a little bit about Chase, I might be moving him either further up and closer to Pitts. But I kind of stand by it. I love Pitts. I really feel like not only, you know, did he – you not only do you see it when you look at the athletic testing, you see it when you watch the film. It's just so obvious that he's an absolute freak out there from a catch radius standpoint, from his strength at the catch point, from his body control in the air, and then just from his route running. For someone that size, they should not be able to get in and out of their break so smoothly. So what does your model say about a player like Pitts? Yeah, let me just start off the bat with talking about film. Uh, I knew five plays in. It was just he is the most fun player I've ever watched on tape. And he is just so insanely special, such a freak athlete. Uh, I tweeted out in December. Uh, I said, I'm going to tweet this out now while the games are on and no one sees it. Uh, and then I'm not going to say his name again without a paywall <laughs> until I'm done with all of my rookie drafts. Kyle Pitts will be in the hall of fame. I haven't felt this sure about a fantasy football eligible prospect since CMC. When CMC was in college, I comped him to LaDainian Tomlinson. I said he was the 101 in rookie draft. I got trashed for it. Kyle Pitts, luckily everyone's now on the bandwagon. Daniel Jeremiah said he's going to 
he's a player most likely to have a Hall of Fame career. People are on the, you know, I, I, I'm not breaking anything new to, to anyone. I know you're a huge fan too, but yeah, this is to me the greatest tight end prospect ever. And that's what my pre-combine model says. And then my post-combine model says he's the second most athletic tight end ever behind only Vernon Davis. So there's just zero holes. And like, you could ask the question, like if he were just a wide receiver, where would he rank? Would he be right there with Chase? I think he might be right there with Chase. This guy can do it all. Uh, We could talk about my model. We could just, we could just gush about his tape, but like there is nothing he couldn't do on tape. He, the moves he made, I, I, I've never seen a tight end move. He, he can beat any type of coverage. He can beat elite uh, cornerbacks who press. Uh, he's just such a mismatch nightmare in any capacity. Just at the catch point, making Megatron catches. Uh, he has speed. He, he's, he's agile. He's explosive. I'm just madly in love with this guy. I feel the same way, and I think it's great how you broke it down. Like, if he was just a receiver, because I know a lot of people are skeptical to draft him because he just simply because he has the tight end label designation next to his name. They look at Eric Ebron. They look at even TJ Hawkinson, who hasn't really, in some fans' minds, been what he should be as such an early draft pick. And then you go back, and there's plenty of examples. Evan Ingram is near and dear to Giants fans' heart. Just a disaster pick based on athleticism, but it's not about athleticism with Pitts. It's literally about the fact that he was detached from the formation, lined up as a boundary receiver, and beat some of the best cornerbacks literally in this draft class. Like, people who are going to go in the top 20 picks, J.C. Horn, he destroyed J.C. Horn. You know, we're talking about players who are some of the best at what they do. Asante Samuel Jr., who I really like in this class, had no chance against him. And even if he was, like you said, just a wide receiver, which he's not going to be because you're going to be able – it's like he's not a great blocker. He's definitely not, but he does have the frame to improve as a blocker. Someone like Evan Ingram could never improve as a blocker no matter how much time and work he put into it. And when you watch Evan Ingram play for the Giants, he's trying out there. He puts effort in. He really wants to be a good blocker, but his frame makes it impossible. But Kyle Pitts actually has a frame that can make him a serviceable blocker. And if you unlock that area of his game, and then you can put him on the line of scrimmage as an inline wide, or just put him, like you said, as a big slaughter, even honestly as a boundary against some corners, it's just, it's crazy to watch. So I'm with you there. I'm happy you said that. He's Him and Chase, if somehow, some way, they fell into the Giants' laps, I think it would be an absolute miracle, but I, I doubt that will happen with either of them, though I do think there's a weird outside chance Chase might be there at 11. It's a weird feeling I have. Like, I have this weird, odd feeling Miami really likes Devontae Smith, and when you look past Miami at 6, the teams drafting 7 to 10, in my mind, aren't really teams I think are going to take a wide receiver. I don't think the Panthers are going that direction. I don't think the Broncos are going in that direction with the recent capital they've invested there. And I don't think the Cowboys are going in that direction either at 10, so you'd really only have one team in between them that might take that second wide receiver, but we'll see what happens there. I want to talk about your model, though, as far as tight ends go. One more thing. Are there any sleeper tight ends you think could be surprises at the next level? Yeah, so, I mean, pitch smashed every single variable that's important to me. His 2020 season was the best age-adjusted season by any tight end since at least 2000. Uh, He put up the the most yards per route run of any tight end uh, any uh, that PFF has ever recorded in college. Uh, he earned a 96.7 receiving grade, which is the highest grade these ever awarded to any player at any position. Like I said at the top, the most important variable is yards per route run. It's, it's yards per route run in your best season, and then 
slightly lesser yards per route run in your final season. Those are, those are two big variables. Hunter Long is really interesting to me. So he's supposed to get drafted after Pat Fryermuth. I'm on board with that. He's supposed to get drafted uh, after Brevin Jordan. I, I'm not sure how I feel about that. He's supposed to get drafted after Tommy Tremble, who from a fantasy perspective, I, I don't know. He, you know, he never had 20 catches in a single season. So, you know, not super excited about him from a fantasy perspective, but he is supposedly the best run blocker in the class. But, but Hunter Long is super, super interesting. Uh, just because his 2019 versus 2020 season were, couldn't be any more different. So his 2019 season, he averaged 3.15 yards per route run. Only picks his 2020 season ranks above that. He averaged 12.7 yards per target, second best since 2015, 10.8 yards after the catch per reception. Again, second best since 2015. So hyper, hyper efficient. He didn't see a lot of volume. I mean, he saw 40 targets. But he only ran 161 routes, which actually is typically beneath my threshold. But it's a run-heavy offense. A.J. Dillon was there. And again, hyper, hyper efficient. What happened in 2020, the efficiency was gone. His yards for target average was nearly cut in half. 30, 35% more yards on 123% more targets. So he saw volume for days. He saw 17 targets in one game. His 24% target share one of the most ever by a tight end in the past decade. And so he had so much volume. He was like treated like the true wide receiver one from an athletic profile. He's basically a Mark Andrews clone, like almost exactly the same in every single stat. But what's interesting to me is like, okay, maybe he's a a bad blocker, but I, I see a lot of upside. Like I said, hyper, hyper efficient 2019 and then the efficiency was gone on a bad passing attack, but the volume was there. And like I said earlier, targets are a positive indicator of talent. I think maybe this guy could be like a Zach Ertz light at the next level, like a, a possession tight end. Uh, that's my hope for him at least, but, you know, seeing him being mocked in like the fourth round, that's not super exciting, but, but I, I think this guy has some talent to him and I, I don't think he's getting talked up enough. I love it, especially because we know as Giants fans, that Jason Garrett could very well position, you know, I could, I guess, proposition the team that he needs a tight end to make this offense work at its efficiency. And like I said, I really don't get the feel Evan Ingram is in their long-term plans. They obviously just signed Kyle Rudolph, but he's on, he's older and they really like to use 12 personnel and even 13 personnel at times last year, the Giants that is. And so that meant two and three tight ends on the field. So that could be a sleeper to keep in mind, but I want to talk a little bit about running backs before I let you go, Scott. Um, we don't talk running backs often here on the Big Blue Banter podcast because obviously the Giants have Saquon and we're praying Dave Gettleman can hold back from investing more major draft capital into position. But I think they could actually really benefit from hitting on a day three running back. So do you have any – does your model or do you have any sleeper running backs that you are seeing that just aren't getting the buzz they deserve and because of the position they're going to fall into that day three range that you really like? Yeah, I'll just say this is a really bad running back class. I think the big three at the top are all very exciting. Najee Harris, Travis Etienne, Javante Williams in that order. And there's like a little three where it's, I have Kenny Gainwell, but he might just be a scat back only in the NFL. I'm not sure. Uh, and it's from a fantasy perspective, like targets are worth 2.85 times as much as a carry. So like that's, that's a big reason why my model likes him. He's going to be a great receiver and, Michael Carter, probably the same thing. Profile similarly to uh, Giovanni Bernard. And then Trey Sermon, 
you know, who flashed at times, didn't have a ton of production in any given season. So my model didn't love him. And then uh, seven, a tier behind Sermon, in all honesty, is Ramondre Stevenson, who I could see going round four. I'll, I'll talk about that in just one second. I, I did want to bring up Evan Ingram. I, I don't want to just totally write him off. We have a injury expert at Fantasy Points uh, who had a phenomenal write-up last year on why fantasy owners needed to fade Evan Ingram at all costs. And that's because he was coming off of a Liz Frank injury. And the, the, the history on Liz Frank injuries is not good for, for players, specifically receivers in their first year back. On average, on-field production drops by 21%. And that's almost exactly what we saw from Evan Ingram last year. But the good news is the year after that, you know, the, the sort of normalized, the, the return to about, you know, 96% of who they were before the Liz Frank injury. So I do think there's some, uh, some reasons for optimism there, but uh, any thoughts on that before I, I go into Ramondre Stevenson? Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. I mean, that's music to our ears, I think. And I think that's a really awesome takeaway that I never had heard of or even considered to this point. And I think that's something the Giants fans should really take to heart because listen, Evan Ingram is on this roster they still believe he's going to be a big part of the team and offense at least for 2021. They've said as much. Joe Judge said he loves him. And if they, you know, add, let's say, a Jalen Waddle or Devontae Smith to the mix with Kenny Galladay, Ingram should theoretically have more opportunities and easier matchups and more space to work with. So I do really like that. I will say this, Scott. I personally, from a film standpoint, when you watch Ingram, it's not pretty, man. He doesn't oh, really yeah. no, I know. great routes. He doesn't cut very well from 90 on 90 degree angles. His hands are terrible at the catch point. His body control in the air is eh at best. And just overall, it just feels like there's, he's not much of a complete player, but like you said, he was much more productive before last season. And that's a really good stat to take away. I think on the flip side though, it's a little alarming from the standpoint of the Giants did agree to go through with the contract with Kyle Rudolph who actually just got surgery for a Liz Frank injury that they weren't aware of at the at the time when they first signed him. They decided to honor the contract. He said he's going to be fine and ready for the start of the season. Maybe he will be fine and ready, but maybe that means we're going to see a big drop-off in his production because he's on that first year off of Liz Frank. So that, that actually scares me a little bit more. And maybe it was meant to call my concerns with the tight end position as it rela- relates to Evan Ingram, but now I'm actually more so nervous for Kyle Rudolph. Yeah, I, I mean, you could definitely see it hurting Evan Ingram just because, like, his his calling card was his speed, you know, an all-time elite speed scorer, weight-adjusted 40-time. And so if, if that's hampering him, you know, it's definitely going to look rough on tape. And it definitely very much looked rough on tape at times before the injury as well. Uh, Kyle Rudolph, uh, yeah, and he, he, I mean, how much tank does, how much does he have left in the tank? Because he had some serious injuries, too. I remember that big you know, Pro Bowl year when he was he was young, and I think he won the Pro Bowl MVP award and suffered a really gruesome injury, and he was kind of never the same after that. I, I really wouldn't be expecting much from uh, from Kyle Rudolph this year, uh, even if even you know not factoring in the Liz Frank, which you know could be a death knell. Uh, Ramondre Stevenson, yeah. I, so like every guy has a type, right? You know, some like him tall or skinny or thick. Stevenson's exactly my type. I, I just love the big, the big, powerful downfield runners. And like, so I liked his tape a lot. Athletically, the 40 time was pretty, pretty underwhelming, pretty underwhelming. You know, if he ran 10, like 
0.1 seconds faster. Uh, he could be Nick Chubb, you know, freakish uh, lateral agility, a great three cone at his size. Uh, but he's probably just a little too slow. Um, I mean, he, he had Trey Sermon running for the hills. You know, Sermon transferred out to Ohio State. He has Ramondre Stevenson, you know, almost outproduced him on fewer touches, uh, hyper-efficient, you know, great, uh, 7.15 career yards per carry. Uh, he led all running backs in yards after contact per attempt in 2020. Um, he, uh, he averaged 100, plus, uh, 100 rushing yards over 100 rushing yards and over 35 receiving yards per game last year. Uh, only four, uh, three other running backs in the power five have done that since 2015, Dalvin cook, Joe Mixon, Christian McCaffrey, you know, obviously he's not on that level, but you know, I, I do like him as the seventh uh, running back in this class. And as you know, an early day three option, I, I, I think there's, there's some upside there. And like I said, a special, the, the way he moves laterally, uh, at his size is is special, but the the top speed's a concern. Uh, I don't know if you wanted to wrap it up, but I actually had a question for you. Yeah, well, I definitely get to that, but I first want to t- touch a little bit on what you just said. I agree. I, like traits I look for in running backs, contact balance and lateral agility are really high up there for me. And I think as far as the advanced stats go, that kind of going to predictive. I think at the running back position, it actually you can you can find some of the best predictive stats as far as like force missed tackles and yards after contact per attempt are two of my favorite stats and they've been incredibly predictive but I think like you said there's occasionally that pitfall so for example like someone like Zach Moss to me he was really good when it came to those metrics but when he got to the next level that just that small jump in speed that you can't really test for you can't really see in the metrics or anything like that you just see it when you watch them at the next level I think it's made a difference. He really hasn't been that player I expected him to be, at least from the film I've seen on Zach Moss. And I wonder if that would be the same case for Stevenson. But it is interesting because those are generally like the traits I look for in the sleepers. But go ahead. What were you going to ask me, Scott? Yeah. So as you know, I'm a Giants fan. Uh, I want to know, what do you think they do at 11? And and where do you think the tier ends? Because to me, the tier ends at 10. With, you know, all the running backs going early, uh, you know, the big five, you know, we love Chase, we love Pitts, Sewell, Slater, Studs, Patrick Sertan, I think, goes to Dallas at 10. If you have, you know, I'm hearing rumors from my sources that Detroit is enamored in Jalen Waddell. You know, if he goes there, could, you know, Patrick Sertan fall to the Giants 11? That would be so awesome, I think, to me. Uh, could the Giants take Waddle, who, like, that's the guy he's who's being mocked to the Giants most often, at least from what I'm seeing. But then again, like, I called him a slot-only guy, and the Giants have had this problem where, you know, Golden Tate, I think, is better in the slot. Sterling Shepard is better in the slot. So you have, you know, two slot-wide receivers on the field, and you, you kick one guy outside where he's, you know, not as suited to his strengths. What, what do you think they do? Where, where do you think the tier ends? Do you think they're just behind it? or the tier dies with them. So there's been a lot of talk about this. I actually think they're in a really good spot just because of what San Francisco did to trade up there, and I think that locks in three quarterbacks that go before their pick. 
The player I predict will go to the Giants is the same player I predicted would go to the Giants back in January. I haven't moved off that spot. I think they'll sit there at 11, and I think they'll take Devontae Smith. He just has everything Gettleman wants in a player. He has the multiple years of production. He has the Heisman pedigree, which matters a lot to him. He has really, really rave reviews from Saban off the field. From character standpoint, he's also one of the hardest workers in practice and when it comes to studying kind of the different combination route combinations and the different things that cornerback put on film. He takes a lot of notes on the matchups. He has everything the Giants want, this new age Giants with Joe Judge and Gettleman wants from a player in general. And I think ultimately they're either going to go with Smith there at 11 or they're going to reach and they're going to take what they consider to be the best edge in the class, whoever that may be. I hope it's not quitty pay. I don't even, I personally don't want a single edge at 11, but I think what it comes down to is one of those three receivers will drop to them. And I think they'll go with one of those three receivers, whether that be Waddle, Smith, or the outside chance, it's Jamar Chase. And ultimately, I think that's, I I hope at least they go in that direction. Because to me, when you're sitting at 11 and there's three quarterbacks that go before you, not in every class, but in this specific class, they will have a chance at one of these blue chip players who, in my mind, I consider the blue chips at the top of this draft to be Penny Sewell, Rashawn Slater, the big three receivers, Kyle Pitts. Um, and then for me, it, it pretty much stops there. I can make the care. I'm sorry, Patrick Sertan, but after signing a Dory Jackson, I don't think they're going to go in that direction at corner because they really like what they have in Darnay Holmes. They obviously still have James Bradbury on contract. So if they were to draft Patrick Sertan there, it would be, you'd probably have to bury Darnay Holmes on the depth chart, which I don't think they want to do. It would, it would give them an unbelievable cornerback trio and just Dory Jackson, Patrick Sertan and James Bradbury would be fun to watch, but I don't see it happening. You can make the case Micah Parsons is a blue chip, but I don't think the Giants are the type of team that's going to take an off-ball linebacker that high. And a lot of, you know, really smart minds that I really like, Benjamin Solak, I saw tweeting about this when there was discussion of the Eagles maybe taking Parsons, say I would never take an off-ball linebacker in the top 10 or 12 or whatever range that would be. So, and I, and I don't think any of the edges fit that profile there. So to me, it's simple. You take one of the blue chip guys, you take one of the best in the class, but we'll see how it breaks out. Um, obviously it should be interesting. I 1000% agree with you. I just think you're so right. I think Devonta Smith is just such a Gettleman guy. I think right. could see him you know, sort of stubbornly overrating an edge guy. Just, you know, he loves that position. I could definitely see that as well. And the one thing we know with Gettleman is he doesn't like to move up and he doesn't like to move down. Unfortunately, I know you and I were both pounding the table for the Giants to, to trade down rather than take Saquon Barkley, where everyone else was, you know, saying, uh, you know, they needed to take a quarterback. And you and I both were like, eh, don't really love Rosen. Don't really love Darnold. Uh, but yeah, that, that would have been better. And, and, you know, hopefully it doesn't come to that again. And I think you're right as Devonta Smith. I don't know how I feel about that yet, but, but, uh, that definitely makes a lot of sense to me. Well, I'll actually own up to it. Scott, I was high on Rosen and I did want the Giants to select. Rosen or Donald Donald but I did say if they're not going to go quarterback and they didn't have a good clue from these quarterbacks the only other move would be to trade down there was literally no other option in my mind that made any sense other than trading down and it is amazing to me that people talk about well they could have never traded down what could they've got literally the Colts traded from six to three with the Jets in that draft do you really think the the Jets wouldn't have taken the second overall pick over the third then people are like oh the Jets won't trade with the Giants Literally a year and a half later, the Jets took two draft picks for Leonard Williams. So it's like, I don't know. 
know where people are getting any of this stuff from. It just sounds crazy to me. But I do want to ask you one more thing before we, we, we sign off here. And I know you, I took a lot of your time here. I appreciate you spending all this time to talk ball with us here on the Big Blue Bander podcast. But before you go, I want to talk at least a little bit about our boy, Zach Wilson. We've talked a lot about Wilson <laughs> DMs. I'm a massive fan of him and his upside due to his arm talent. I've talked to you about this. Do you still feel the same way about Wilson now that you've had more time to kind of watch him, or have you kind of waned on that? Where do you stand now on Wilson? Oh, a- absolutely. I-, I have to say, we were so early on that, and it's been kind of crazy to see the media- me- meteoric rise follow. You know, this is when he was maybe a late first-round pick, maybe even before that. You and I were saying, this guy's going in the first round for sure. He, he might go top five, and then you know, a few weeks later, we're just like, I think he's the QB two in the, this class, and like people are just scared to say it. And then yep. four weeks later, you know, more and more people saying QB two, and now unanimous QB two. It feels like you know, getting on Bitcoin early, and it's just like <laughs> sixty thousand. We're like, whoa, this is this is kind of crazy. But yeah, man, I mean, it's all the things we said. It's just <clears throat> those special wow plays, elite, elite deep touch in a way. I've only ever seen from the best quarterbacks in the NFL. Uh, High-level arm talent, uh, arm strength, uh, making creative plays, unorthodox arm angles. He is just so much fun to watch on tape. He also you know, works through all of his progressions, almost always hits the right guy, the right guy he should. Uh, he can create plays on his own. I, I mean, him at QB2 makes a ton of sense for me. Uh, and 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 just big big time Zach Wilson fan. And I'm a little worried, honestly, Scott, about him going to the Jets. I've seen them destroy quarterbacks over time, but I have a little more faith in this new age Jets regime with Joe Douglas. I think he's shown he understands the importance of building out that offensive line, which to me is ultimately what Zach Wilson will need. I think he can make any receiver work with his arm talent, but he's just going to need a line. So we'll see what happens there. But Scott, thank you so much for taking all this time to join the Big Blue Bander podcast to talk the 2021 NFL draft prospects with us. Before you sign off, is there anything you want to tell the fans? Let let everybody know where they can follow you and find your work and anything else you want to promote. Yeah, you can follow me on Twitter at ScottBarrettDFB. Uh, and you can check out my work at fantasypoints.com. Awesome. Great stuff, Scott. Thanks again, and I'll talk to you soon, man. Yep. Thanks, Dan. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around, a watch she can wear every day from Movement. Whether your mom is into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now, everything at Movement is up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale. A watch is a gift that celebrates all the time you spent with mom. And a Movement watch is even more than that. Movement uses industry-leading materials for their fresh modern watch designs, from technically complex ceramics to vintage-inspired style, all for an incredible value your wrist and wallet will both love. And with one-size-fits-all convenience and fast-free shipping and returns, it's a stress-free shopping experience. Save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with Movement. Get up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com.